Tonight, more gun violence in the Lower Mainland, and now a man wounded on Friday turns out to be an alleged gangster and BC money launderer. Plus. We don't really need an election right now. We're in the middle of a pandemic. But there's a chance British Columbians may have to cast two ballots this fall. And. A piece of from another country that has no right here. A racist anti-mask tirade. Now the response that's gone viral. You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Langley, the latest Metro Vancouver community to be the scene of gun violence. Witnesses saw two people shooting at each other last night, leaving bullet holes in a gas pump at a station at 232nd and 72nd Avenue. Remarkably, no one was hurt and the shooters got away. Langley RCMP believe both parties knew each other. Officers are still trying to confirm a description of the shooters and their vehicles are said to be dark colored. Good evening. Thanks for joining us. Last night's shooting makes six days of gun violence on Lower Mainland streets. One person wounded in last week's shooting spree is an alleged money launderer. The B.C. government has taken to court in order to seize some of his assets. Kristen Robinson has more. Alleged transnational gangster Paul King Jin, one of the targets of the RCMP's failed e-pirate money laundering probe, wounded in the face in a targeted shooting Friday. His co-accused in the massive investigation, Jian Janzu, killed. When people or are there allegations that individuals are engaged in, uh, in the gangland uh, lifestyle or the money laundering criminal lifestyle, that uh, you can very easily uh, end up dead. Project E-Pirates centered around a company, Silver International, and allegations a couple who ran it out of this Richmond building was part of a system suspected of washing a billion dollars a year through casinos and real estate. The allegations never proven in court and the charges unexpectedly stayed before trial. We've strengthened the, uh, the civil forfeiture laws uh, and uh, police have, have more tools to be able to go after assets. The province now attempting to seize property connected to the case. In a civil claim filed last month, BC's director of civil forfeiture alleges this Richmond property was purchased with the proceeds of crime. It names Jin as manager of the World Champion Club, an MMA gym on the property that was assessed at $7.7 million last year. The claim alleges Jin has been engaged in large-scale money laundering activities involving licensed casinos, illegal gaming houses, and an unlicensed financial institution since 2012. None of the allegations has been proven in court, and Jin has yet to file a response. In a response to a separate civil forfeiture action last year, Jin denied the allegations and says he's been a Canadian citizen for more than 25 years, involved in boxing and martial arts as a participant and coach. Quote, Jin has engaged in numerous forms of lawful employment over the course of his life, including while in Canada. Meantime, homicide investigators trying to determine who pulled the trigger on Jin and fatally wounded Zhu at a Richmond restaurant. Kristen Robinson, Global News. 
Three people have been injured and a woman has been arrested in connection with an attack this afternoon in a busy East Vancouver parking lot. Vancouver police say a 47-year-old woman and her husband were walking in the Safeway parking lot near East Broadway and Commercial Drive this afternoon when she was stabbed. Her husband, along with a customer and two Safeway staff members, were able to hold the suspect until police arrived. And the victim was rushed to hospital with non-life-threatening injuries. Two of the men who helped out suffered minor injuries. The VPD says the suspect did not know any of the victims. A 38-year-old Vancouver woman was taken to hospital for medical assessment. The number of COVID-19 exposures at BC schools continues to grow. The Northern Health Authority added two schools to its exposures list, Quinnell Junior Secondary and Ecole Frank Ross Elementary in Dawson Creek. The exposure dates for both schools were on September 10th and 11th, but the health authorities stressed that the notices did not mean children had been exposed. Last night, Surrey School Superintendent Jordan Tinney said two more schools in that district are reporting exposures. Ecole Panorama Ridge Secondary and Tamanawa Secondary. Parents of students at West Vancouver's Sentinel Secondary also received a letter about a case. It stated if anyone was exposed, they would be contacted directly. And Richmond's R.A. McMath Secondary also sent out a letter to parents about a possible exposure. Another cabinet minister in the B.C. government is not seeking re-election. Transportation Minister Claire Trevenna announced today that she is not running in the next provincial election, saying it's time to move on and take on new challenges. She is currently the MLA for North Island. That's just one of a growing number of hints that the provincial government may be preparing to call a snap election at any moment. But will voters be receptive during a pandemic? How would an election be conducted safely? And how would matters be further complicated if, however remote the possibility, a federal election comes at the same time? Grace Key went looking for some answers. There's talk of a possible election on both the provincial and federal level, but some are wondering how wise a call that would be during a pandemic. I think the whole thing can wait until the pandemic has passed and times are better. I'm not sure people do have the time or even the mental energy to pay attention to the, all of the issues as opposed to just what's happening right now. COVID's been around now for long enough that people have found sort of a rhythm. They have the mind space to think about who to vote for. You can most likely expect a new way of campaigning, one that focuses on more social media and reaching out by phone rather than large rallies and door-to-door -door knocking. The leaders, of course, will still go out and do their photo ops, but without large crowds. Uh, we certainly won't see any large campaign rallies that leaders tend to like to pump up enthusiasm for their supporters. Good luck. Uh, thank you very much. New Brunswick was the first province to hold an election during the pandemic. On top of social distancing and increased cleaning, Elections BC is planning on more advanced voting and mail-in ballot options. Reasonably comfortable. I'm not that worried about it, no. Precautions can be taken. It's like any other place, right? I mean, as long as there's like precautions being taken, then totally fine. So there has to be sanitation, right? Wipe downs, sprays, all that stuff. Older people would be more nervous about going out to the polls, uh, whereas younger people are less likely to take up alternative voting mains like mail-in ballots. So I would anticipate uh, a decline, perhaps not a huge decline. There is always the risk that the hope for a majority government could backfire if voters think it's a politically self-serving move during a pandemic. Grace Key, Global News. With more on what we can expect on this busy week ahead, Legislative Bureau Chief Keith Baldry joins us. Keith, when do you think a provincial election call is likely?
Yeah, million dollar question, right? So the way to figure this out, folks, is by law, you sort of figure out when the election would occur and then you work backwards in terms of where the call is. So by law, it has to be held on a Saturday. Uh, the earliest Saturday can be held is the 24th. The latest likely is November 7th. You're not going to hold on a Halloween in between. So that could put the election call as early as Monday or Tuesday. Take a look at this. This is going to be a very busy week coming up. So potential, and I stress the word potential, election call for Monday, more likely Tuesday. On top of that, don't forget, we're in the pandemic and our COVID-19 cases continue to be very high. The daily average is now running at 120. That average keeps going up. And then on the federal scene, you've got that throne speech on Wednesday. So that's going to be a key development as well. I don't think the Trudeau government will fall because I think the NDP will support that uh, that uh, throne speech in the confidence vote. But it potentially could be a very busy fall if John Horgan pulls the plug. As many in his government expect him to do, it's very extraordinary to now have seven cabinet ministers declare they're not running and that's sort of a lame duck cabinet right now, and I'm not sure it can continue for much longer. So either this week or next week for the, uh, for the auction call is the most likely scenario. But, folks, it's never done unless we actually see the issue, and we haven't seen that yet. Okay. I'll see you tomorrow on BC1 right. for the uh, COVID yeah. news conference. Thanks, Keith. The BC NDP may have another problem on its hands when it comes to their next candidate in the riding of Stikeen. Anita McPhee, an Indigenous advocate who served three terms as president of the Toutlin central government, has submitted her paperwork to be the NDP candidate in the northern riding. Former NDP MP Nathan Cullen has also announced plans to seek the nomination, but he doesn't qualify under the existing mandate. The party's own rules state that when a self-identifying white male MLA over the age of 40 does not run again, that next candidate for the party must be from an equity-seeking group. Current MLA Doug Donaldson is not running again. Starting tomorrow, the fine for Doring increases right across the province. Cycling advocates had been calling for stricter penalties for opening the door of a parked car when it's not safe to do so. One of the most notable cases was in January of 2019 when a 55-year-old cyclist was killed in North Vancouver when a car door that was suddenly open forced him into the path of a dump truck. And the fine goes up Monday to $368. That's a four times the current fine of $81. Canada's Attorney General is vehemently denying the RCMP used excessive force in a rough arrest caught on camera in Kelowna earlier this year. The federal government's defense is detailed in a legal response to a civil suit filed by the man at the center of the police takedown. Shelby Tom has more. Shocking bystander video shows Kelowna RCMP Constable Siggy Peterzak punching Tyler Russell multiple times in the head while he was restrained during an arrest in May. Now the Attorney General of Canada says this use of force was justified. The feds responding to a lawsuit Russell filed against the provincial and federal governments as well as Constable Peterzak seeking damages for injuries to his face and ribs. Police say they were responding to reports of a possible impaired driver and found Russell in the passenger seat of a pickup truck in this downtown Kelowna parking lot matching the description. The federal government alleges in court filings that Russell became argumentative and aggressive when he was asked to take a breath test and a physical struggle ensued. The officers called for backup. 
RCMP member Constable Peter Zak then arrived at the scene and applied multiple closed hand strikes to the plaintiff's head in order to gain control, the response to the claim says. Russell was arrested for obstruction and police allege they found a half-empty bottle of booze and drugs in the vehicle. He was never criminally charged. The attorney general argues that police had reasonable and probable grounds to arrest Russell and refutes allegations he was assaulted. The court filing says the attorney general denies that the RCMP members used excessive force in apprehending the plaintiff. After video of the takedown surfaced online, Superintendent Brent Mundell called the officer's actions concerning, but that police are trained to use strikes as a method of force when appropriate. Anytime an officer is required to apply a use of force option during an arrest, it can appear very disturbing. An update on the internal review into Peter Zach's actions and his duty status was not made available by RCMP over the weekend. None of the allegations have been proven in court. Shelby Tom, Global News. Richmond RCMP are asking for your help to identify a man who allegedly tried to coax a child into his vehicle. A 10-year-old boy told police he was approached by a man driving a van in the 6800 block of Azure Road, which is close to Brighouse Elementary. It happened a week ago Monday, allegedly. That driver allegedly told the child that he knew his mother and that he was supposed to take him home. The boy was suspicious of the claim and ran home. The suspect driver is described as Asian, possibly with an accent, 50 years old, with short, straight black hair, a pimpled, freckled or dotted face. He was wearing a white shirt and gold chain. A vehicle is described as champagne colored and with a black circle logo surrounded by Asian type writing. If you have any information about this incident, you're asked to call Richmond RCMP or Crime Stoppers. RCMP on Vancouver Island are releasing surveillance images of a violent robbery su suspect. The suspect, a white man between 20 to 30 years old, is accused of stabbing a store employee during a robbery in Courtney Friday night. Police say he attacked the woman at a business on Ryan Road before stealing money and cigarettes. The suspect was wearing a black hoodie, possibly with Iron Maiden on the front. Anyone with information is asked to call Comox RCMP. The search for an overdue boater in the Kootenai region has been suspended. 58-year-old Thomas Schreiber was last seen September 15th before he headed out for a canoe trip on Duncan Lake. Caslow RCMP say the next day his truck was found at the boat launch, but no sign of Schreiber. The underwater recovery team was called in, but despite extensive efforts this weekend, he remains missing. He is described as white, six foot two, 196 pounds with brown hair and hazel eyes. Anyone with information is asked to contact Caslow RCMP. Aviation buffs at Kamloops Airport got quite the sight today, the landing of a large military aircraft. The snowbirds were grounded in Kamloops following an accident in May that claimed the life of their public affairs officer, Captain Jen Casey. The mayor of Kamloops has said a Hercules aircraft was flying in today to clear away the rest of the snowbirds' equipment from the airport. It appears belligerence by some anti-maskers is now being seen on this side of the border. A video being shared on social media shows a man using a racist insult towards a clerk in a Calgary liquor store. Now one city councillor is saying people who don't want to wear masks should simply stay home. Carolyn Curry-DiCastillo reports, and a warning, this is disturbing. 
In the video, a man can be heard asking the woman working in the store where she was born. A piece of sh from another country that has no right here. The owner of the Northwest Liquor Store says the dispute started when her sister, who was working alone, was approached by a man at around 4.30 Saturday afternoon. According to the family, the man had an issue with the woman not wearing a mask when she was behind the plexiglass barrier. She points out that the mask is not required by a person separated by a barrier. The video shows the man leaving the store swearing and using racial slurs. Get out of I was disturbed. I couldn't believe that, you know, people still have that sort of mentality. The store owner sent the video her sister recorded to a friend who posted it on social media. Neither woman wanted to be identified for fear of drawing attention to their family business. Ward 3 counselor Jody Gondick said she went to visit the owners of the store when she saw the video Saturday evening. Don't spew your nonsense, racist garbage at people who are doing you a favor by keeping their doors open. The sisters say this type of racist outburst has never happened in their store, but it used to when they were younger. Growing up, we've dealt with this kind of attitude and stuff. It's much better now, right? But, you know, to see that kind of stuff is disturbing. Gondek also had a message for people who refuse to comply with the city mask bylaw and use racial slurs. Please do us all a favor and stay home if you don't want to wear a mask and you're a horrible racist person. The owner reported the incident to the Calgary police who say they are looking into it. Carolyn Curry, De Castillo, Global News. The Canadian flag at the Peace Tower in Ottawa lowered today in memory of former Prime Minister John Turner. It will remain at half-mast until the day of his funeral, which has yet to be announced. Tributes continue to pour in. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau posted that Turner was an upstanding Canadian who cared deeply about democracy. Several other politicians, including former Prime Minister Stephen Harper, added that Turner's commitment to public service will be remembered for generations. John Turner died peacefully in his sleep in his Toronto home on Friday at the age of 91. Westminster Abbey hosted its first in-person event today since the pandemic began, marking the 80th anniversary of the Battle of Britain. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson attended the ceremony with pandemic precautions in place to pay respects to the service personnel who lost their lives during the campaign in the summer and fall of 1940. The battle between Allied pilots and Nazi Germany's Luftwaffe was fought entirely in the air over southern England. Three vintage Spitfires and one hurricane flew over London as part of the memorial. Some 100 Canadian Air Force pilots participated in the battle. The victory eventually led to the liberation of France and Europe. We have some breaking news out of the U.S. The RCMP have now confirmed that American federal agents have detained a woman trying to cross from Canada into the United States. The suspect in question was carrying a gun and was wanted in connection with the dangerous package that was intended for the White House. The package containing the poison ricin was addressed to U.S. President Donald Trump but was intercepted at the sorting facility. The RCMP say it has been working with the FBI because the package originated from Canada. The U.S. has reached another grim milestone in the fight against the coronavirus. According to an NBC News tally, more than 200,000 people have now died from COVID-19, with cases topping 6.7 million. California, Texas, Florida and New York report the highest number of cases. Experts predict more than 400,000 deaths could come by January. 
Mourners continue to place flowers in front of the U.S. Supreme Court building in honor of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She died Friday due to complications of metastatic pancreatic cancer. Black drapes have been installed at the U.S. Supreme Court to honor the late justice. As is tradition, black wool has been draped over her courtroom chair, the court bench, and the door leading into the marble courtroom. The court also said that the flags at the front of the building of the plaza will be kept at half-staff for 30 days. U.S. President Donald Trump plans to submit his nominee for the Supreme Court this week, and he says it will be a woman. Democrats, however, are pushing back, just as the Republicans did when the, they blocked Barack Obama's nominee. As Jennifer Johnson reports, this is just one more fight that centers around the November election. With crowds cheering, fill that seat at a campaign rally, U.S. President Donald Trump promised he will do just that within days of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg's passing. I will be putting forth a nominee next week. It will be a woman. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell is promising an immediate hearing. Critics are calling him a hypocrite after McConnell blocked President Barack Obama's Supreme Court pick for over nine months, saying it was too close to an election. Democrats at a Supreme Court vigil for Ginsburg are sounding the alarm. Mitch McConnell and his henchmen believe that they can ram through a Supreme Court justice only 45 days from the election. This fight has just begun. Senate Democrats need just four Republicans to block the nomination. Already two, Senators Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski, have said the decision should be made after the November 3rd election. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is vowing to stop the president, even if it means launching a new impeachment hearing against him. We have our options. We have arrows in our quiver that I'm not about to discuss right now. Even before a name has been submitted, tempers are flaring, further igniting what has already been a bitter, contentious election year. Jennifer Johnson, Global News, Washington. A federal judge has barred the federal government from banning the WeChat app. The judge in California has granted an injunction to stop the Trump administration from banning the messaging service from U.S. app stores, a move that is set to take effect tonight. The president cites concerns over data privacy and national security for pushing to bar the app. But WeChat users say the service is a lifeline to family, friends and others in China. And they successfully argued that a ban would restrict their First Amendment right to free speech. Amazing footage out of France tonight. A drone captured this mobile home being swept away by floodwaters. The southern part of the country has been inundated with heavy rain leading to flash flooding. At least two people have been reported missing. You're watching Global News Hour at 6. Didn't know if my animals would still be alive. It was horrifying. The effort in Oregon to provide shelter to farm animals that managed to survive the wildfires. We're going to have that for you right after Yvonne's forecast. But first, Atlantic Canada is bracing for the remnants of Hurricane Teddy, which is expected to move southeast of Bermuda on Monday. The Canadian Hurricane Center says it will then accelerate towards the Maritimes. The Category 3 hurricane is expected to weaken to a Category 2 by the time it reaches Canadian waters on Tuesday and Wednesday. A storm surge and heavy rain are possible for parts of Nova Scotia, Prince Edward Island and Newfoundland and Labrador. So Yvonne, 
not so much fun out east. No, and we are going to continue to track it. So here's a quick glance at what it looks like on the satellite. Right now it is actually sitting at a Category 2, and the winds uh, sustained at just over 160 kilometres per hour, gusts of just over 205, and right now it's moving in north northerly direction at around 14 kilometres per hour. So it'll track towards Atlantic Canada, and the concern on Tuesday, Wednesday will be the storm surge, the waves, large waves over 8 feet tall, and the winds potentially sustained at 70 and gusts of over 100. 100 kilometers per hour. So a close eye Tuesday, Wednesday will be the timeline as it starts to push its way along the coast and reach its way along Atlantic Canada. All right, what a difference a day makes across the south coast and much of the province today. We had uh, clearer air for most areas. We start to see the uh, the fire uh, smoke flush out of the province. And here's a quick glance at what it looks like outside overlooking English Bay. 20 degrees right now, a southeasterly wind at 13 kilometers per hour. A beautiful shot at what it looked like this morning Thompson Marsh Park so thank you so much Sandra for capturing that air quality health index I took this to snapshot just over the last hour so we've seen a huge improvement we're sitting at low for much of the southern half similar even across the central interior the Colombian Kootenai could still see a little bit of local smoke across the region but for example Friday Saturday we had the air quality health index at very high so a nice improvement fresher air for much of the province temperatures today with the sunshine peeking through bumped up to 26 degrees near a Soyuz Kamloops up to 24 and across the central interior with highs up to 17. We are still seeing a bit of instability this evening and that's across the central interior. The risk of thunderstorms that'll taper off and it'll be a calmer day tomorrow. A wave of moisture still continues to bring showers for much of the south coast tomorrow and areas that are closer to the water will see windy conditions. Most areas towards the south though will remain dry. Futurecast as we put it into play it looks like it'll be a nice dry start to our week but we are going to see a fair bit of cloud cover for the day. By the afternoon just a slight chance for an isolated shower and then we'll be tracking showers towards the evening and Tuesday officially welcoming fall. It's going to be a wet one in the long range Tuesday onwards and we'll be tracking the first fall storm of the season. Here's a quick glance and a look ahead. So Wednesday through Friday we've got a significant amount that's going to move in. One of the model data is showing us that a few spots could get close to or upwards of 100 millimeters. So it is going to be a wet start to fall and that'll help out uh, for many areas across the province and really flush out the smoke. Now the northern half of the province tomorrow so it's showers. It'll pick up for the winds by the afternoon. Much of the central interior should remain dry. It's the Columbia tomorrow that will see a fair bit of cloud cover and a chance of showers. And the Columbia and Kootenai still some local smoke, but there is an improvement for the air quality. Now towards the south, the Thompson Okanagan, bright start to the morning. Increasing cloud cover will be towards the afternoon. And along the island tomorrow, especially the northern and central half, we are looking at some wet weather. It'll be heavy at times for the western edge for areas near Tofino, but it should still remain dry for Victoria underneath a mainly cloudy sky. All right. Fall equinox on Tuesday, the most direct rays of the sun move south of the equator and will officially welcome fall. It is going to feel fall like at 6.30 in the morning on <laughs> Tuesday. And it'll feel very fall-like, Colleen, as we start to see that wet and very windy weather for our Wednesday onwards. Oh, perfect timing. Thanks so much, Yvonne. Well, as Yvonne noted, the smoke in B.C. is certainly clearing, but wildfires continue to rage along the U.S. West Coast. In Oregon, the state fairgrounds have become a refuge for rescued farm animals, a huge operation with an even bigger heart. To know that people care and that they open this up for us, it's beautiful. And it takes a big load off of us as, as farmers 
to know there's a safe haven for our animals that we love and cherish. As the smoke begins to clear, Tammy Torville can finally catch her breath. Oh, I just want to get them home so bad. She's been in survival mode ever since she was evacuated from her small farm in Drake's Crossing. I grabbed my dad and our clothes on our back and our medication and left. Luckily, she could go back for the rest of her family, her animals. You want to play, Mama? You want to play? <laughs> Didn't know if my animals would still be alive. It was horrifying. Odie and Lily, along with hundreds of other animals, found refuge here at the Oregon State Fairgrounds, taken in when the wildfires roared into their pastures. We just pulled together. And now they're finally able to go home. I mean, it, it hits home harder than most people know. But the kindness of the community comes in all sizes, <laughs> with a little bit of grit and a whole lot of heart. Ashley Mershon's pasture is a lot quieter than it was just a couple of days ago. Her family took in a couple dozen animals, some from people she doesn't even know. It's all these people that came together to be able to do this for each other. It's, it's unbelievable. But she worries. What's next? This is just the beginning, unfortunately, and I hope that more people can start seeing not just the immediate need, but the long-term need and, and helping each other out that way. Back at the state fairgrounds, Tammy is getting ready to hit the road, back home to rebuild fences and her livelihood. To know that there's people out there that don't know you, but are feeling your pain, it's it just there's good humanity still in this world. Nice. Reminds me of the Fort McMurray fire, the fires here in BC, people just banding together and helping each other out. It's the way it ought to be. Yeah, definitely. Uh, how ought it be during your sports cast? Well, uh, Seahawks are playing prime time tonight against New England. They're always great games and they're not disappointing. So we'll have early highlights of that one. And uh, big brawny Bryson DeChambeau muscled his way to the U.S. Open. He, he literally overpowered the course. We'll have highlights of that coming up as well. All right. Thanks so much, Barry. Have a look at this. Popular Turkish YouTuber Hasan Kaval performing his latest stunt, paragliding in bed, of course, complete with bedside tables, a lamp, and an alarm clock. Yet donning his eye mask, Caval flew for about 15 minutes. Then when the alarm went off, it was time to bring the bed back down to the ground. And he did that smoothly, landing on a beach. Good for him. Well, the Tour de France finished up in Paris today after a two-month delay due to the pandemic. The 117-year-old event took extensive precautions against the virus and is now being seen as a test case for how to prevent the spread in a major sporting event. Whether you care about this race or not, this is important because it's kind of a, a test case for COVID, for major events during the pandemic. Every year, there's testing here at the Tour de France, but this year, the testing has helped to make this a success rather than a scandal. There were four tests over the course of this race, and all of them, all of the riders at least, have always come back negative. Some of the supporting staff, five of them at least, were found to be positive, but they were simply removed from what they called the tour bubble. That's the traveling circus of about 800 people who are traveling more than 2,000 miles all around France at the height of the second wave of this global pandemic. This could be a model, a test case, if you will, for other major events like the Olympics or the World Cup. So it just goes to show when vigilance is in place and the French have shown this, they can pull off a major event like this. Matt Bradley, NBC News, Paris.
Oh, and by the way, 21-year-old Tadej Pogacar won the race, the first Slovenian to win the Tour de France. Congratulations to him. Barry's here with sports, and you're starting out with what I would suspect is the story about the NFL team that most British Columbians like. Yeah, this is definitely Seahawk uh, country when it comes to the NFL, and a great year to be a Seahawk fan because they're uh, right in contention. Thanks, Colleen. Well, even without Tom Brady, the Patriots are still a team you measure yourself against, and the Seahawks get that chance tonight in prime time. Bill Belichick went out of his way to praise both Pete Carroll and Russell Wilson this week, which leads to the question, what is he up to? He never trust Belichick. No fans at CenturyLink Field. They would have been quiet after this play. Russell Wilson, perfect pass, but right through the hands of Greg Olson. Devon, uh, Devin McCourty rather picks it, takes it all the way back, 43 yards for the touchdown, 7-0 Patriots. Not Russell's fault. The Seahawks answer, 13-play, 75-yard drive, capped by this Wilson to Tyler Lockett pass for the touchdown. And Wilson perfect on that drive, ties it 7-7, but Cam Newton and the Patriots uh, will respond with their first offensive drive, 72 yards, Newton takes it in himself, third touchdown already in two games for Big Cam, but Russell Wilson back for more, going deep for DK Metcalf, perfectly delivered as usual, touchdown Seahawks, Wilson 11 of 12, 139 yards, two touchdowns, 14 all as they're just before halftime. From the 16. Ben gonna go deep down the far sideline. He's got his man. That ball is caught by Claypool. And Claypool to the end zone for the touchdown. Abbotsford's Chase Claypool got his first NFL touchdown today with the Steelers, and it was the kind of play that demonstrates what a game-breaker he can be with the size-speed combination. 84 yards from Ben Roethlisberger for the touchdown. A great job to stay inbound. Steelers go to 2-0 after the 26-21 win over Denver. 49ers and Jets. San Francisco lost its opener, much to the delight of Seahawks fans, but a different story today in New York. Very first play from scrimmage, Raheem Mostert takes the pitch and then just keeps on going. Gallops 80 yards for the touchdown. 49ers jumped out 7-0 and never looked back. Jimmy Garoppolo did throw a pair of touchdown passes to Jordan Reed as San Fran won 31-13, but Garoppolo did leave the game later with a high ankle sprain. Few 49ers were banged up today, but they win and go to 1-1. One Wild finish between the Falcons and Cowboys. Dallas was down 39-24 with just five minutes to go. They got to within 39-37, needed to recover the onside kick, which is usually about one out of 20. Greg Zerline, though, with the unorthodox scribber, just rolls it along the turf, went the 10 yards, they recovered, and then Zerline completes the incredible comeback. 46-yarder as time ran out. Cowboys win 40-39. Packers were impressive for a second straight week, but, uh, well, actually, let's do Panthers-Bucks here first in Tampa. Tom Brady got his first win in his first home game as a Tampa Bay Buck. Brady passed for 217 yards, and this TD passed to Mike Evans as Tampa won 31-17. They are 1-1. One and one. Now the Packers. They were impressive for a second straight week, put 43 points up on Minnesota last week. Today versus the Lions, 42 more. Aaron Rodgers, two touchdown passes. This one to Robert Tanyan gave the Packers their first lead, 17-14, and they rolled from there. Aaron Jones, a 75-yard touchdown run to start the third quarter. Pack now 2-0. 
42-21 the final over Detroit. And you got some Chiefs and Chargers from Los Angeles, fourth quarter. Casey down eight, but Patrick Mahomes to Tyreek Hill, who will roll into the end zone for the 54-yard touchdown. They got the two-pointer to tie it. The game went to overtime. Chiefs kicker Harrison Butker from 58 yards. He hit a 58-yarder earlier to tie the Chiefs' longest field goal record, and then he hits another from 58 yards in overtime as the Chiefs take it 23-20. Final round of the U.S. Open turned into a two-man battle between Big Bomb and Bryson DeChambeau and 21-year-old Matthew Wolf. Wolf led by two entering the day, but DeChambeau made up that ground quickly after Wolf bogeyed the third. DeChambeau tied for the lead with this birdie at the fourth, and then on nine, the par five, both players on the green in two. DeChambeau for eagle, and that is perfectly judged. Rolls it in for the eagle. He's got a three-shot lead for the time being, but moments later, Wolf answers. He knocks in his eagle putt. He goes to four under, just a shot back at the turn. But on the backside, DeChambeau really took over on the 11th. This birdie from the fringe gets him to six under. Now a three-shot lead on Wolf. Now DeChambeau can bomb the ball, but his putting was clutch. This par save at 14 pretty much seals the deal. And now at 18 with a six-shot lead, DeChambeau with a delicate par putt. Shot a three under 67. The only player to break par on the day wins his first U.S. Open. Wolf was second at even. Canadian Taylor Pendrith, even today, tied for 23rd. Adam Hadwin shot 80 and finished 54th at 19 over. Tennis from Rome, Dennis Shapovalov taking on Argentina's Diego Schwartzman in the semis of the Italian Open. Schwartzman upset Rafa Nadal yesterday, won the opening set, but Shapovalov answers. Fantastic forehand winner down the line, took the second set 7-5. It was a wild third set, nobody could hold serve. Schwartzman with the winner here will even it at four apiece, but Shapovalov returns the favor as he will crush the forehand down the line to break and go up five games to four, but he could not serve out the match. Had to hold his serve actually at 6-5, and he does. Beautiful drop shot here. Charged the net a lot, and his uh, hands are very good there. Great shot, so we need a tie break, but after three hours, 15 minutes, Shapovalov showing some fatigue. Made some unforced errors in the tie break, including on match point. A valiant effort, but Schwartzman wins in three sets. He will meet Novak Djokovic in tomorrow's final. Well, credit the Whitecaps for riding their ship this year when it appeared they were headed straight for the rocks. Things looked bleak after that disastrous 0-3 trip through Toronto and Montreal last month. But since then, they've won three of four, including a gutsy effort last night in Salt Lake City. Mark DeSantos has asked for effort and belief from his players, and he got both last night. Seven minutes into the second half, Freddie Montero, great ball to Christian Dahomey, who finds David Malinkovic, who slots in his first ever goal as a white cap. It's 1-0 Vancouver. RSL tied it, but in the 81st, the Caps with the response. Montero with a great pass to Lucas Cavallini, who gets his second as a white cap. 2-1 the final. They improved to 5-7, and seven, and they move above the playoff line to 7th in the West. Did I like the fact that after three games in eight days and travel and recovering so fast coming and see a group of players that fought so much to stay with the three points and give everything they had. They were, they were, the, the, the attitude to keep the win was very good. 
And the Caps are at LAFC on Wednesday. Premier League defending champs Liverpool taking on Chelsea. Liverpool finished 33 points ahead of Chelsea en route to the championship, and they stuck it to them again. Mo Salah and Firmino setting up Sadio Mane. And then the Chelsea keeper with the egregious giveaway. Mane got his second as Liverpool beat Chelsea 2-0. Baseball today, Blue Jays and Phillies. Toronto trying to snap a six-game losing streak, and they did. They got some big hits from the support staff today. Jonathan Davis, a two-run double off the wall in the sixth, gave Toronto a 4-1 lead. And then in the seventh, Teoscar Hernandez, green light on a 3-0 pitch, parks it for a two-run shot. Jays snapped the losing streak, 6-3 final, just seven games left to go. Their magic number to clinch a playoff spot is just four. They should get there. NBA playoffs, Game 2, Nuggets and Lakers. Denver looking to bounce back after a decisive Game 1 loss. LeBron was busy early, 20 points in the first half, including that basket and foul on the three-point play. Canada's Jamal Murray, though, leading the Nuggets back in the second half. Takes the handoff, glides in for the layup. He had 19. It's now 92-89. Close ball game in the fourth, and we'll have complete highlights of that and the Seahawks game tonight at 11. Colleen? Coast to coast to coast held virtual runs, walks, and cycles in support of the annual Terry Fox run today. And that includes a BC teen who cycled for hours this weekend through the Fraser Valley for cancer research. As Paul Johnson reports, Jacob's story has so many remarkable parallels to Terry's that it even prompted Terry's brother, Daryl, to cycle with him. Like a lot of families, the Bradenhoffs have a garage full of bikes, though most don't have one like Jacob's. It is a normal bike. There's just this one little extra adaptive piece on the crank. Jacob seems to make everything look easy. He, uh, he picks things up really, really quickly. Uh, he's, he's very athletic and very strong. No surprise that Jacob wanted to do the Terry Fox run, reconfigured as an individual event this year because of COVID-19. Jacob isn't one to be put off by challenges. Jacob was diagnosed when he was 13 years old. Aggressive osteosarcoma, the same cancer Terry Fox had. He did 17 rounds of chemo and, like Fox, had his leg amputated. So why not ride 100 kilometers to raise money for Fox's charity? This whole summer we've been training super hard, a few times a week at least. <coughs> so on Saturday he set out, thrilled to see a police escort and hundreds of supporters cheering him on. Riding from his home east of Abbotsford to Hope, it wasn't easy. A few of the last hills right before Hope were fairly tough and I was getting really sore at that point. Among the things that kept him going, the image of Terry fighting on through the elements on his run, and the people he met during his own treatment. During all my chemo rounds, I saw lots of kids that I knew pass away, and so seeing that motivated me to want to raise money to help other kids who are suffering now. Jacob's ride has brought in $89,000 so far. So what's next for him? Probably anything he sets his mind to. I don't know yet. It's too quick to say that. <laughs> Paul Johnson, Global News. Holy smoke, good for him. And congratulations are also in order for Brian Earle, who marked a major milestone today by completing his 40th Terry Fox run along the beach in Osoyoos with his dog by his side. But... 
Both of those people, so inspirational. Jacob, wow. Mm -hmm. It's amazing, uh, Terry's legacy just living on exactly uh, the mm -hmm. way he wanted it. So it's It fantastic. is exactly what he would have wanted, right? And that's why, you know, if give whatever you can to, the, um, to cancer research, it certainly helps. Uh, one last quick look at weather, Yvonne. A drier day will be for tomorrow. We are seeing some showers rolling in and then fall officially on Tuesday, and it's going to be a wet one, a soaker as we look ahead Wednesday through Friday. Where the weather forecast falls down. <laughs> Thanks, Yvonne. That is the news hour for tonight. Jordan's here at 11. Have a great evening.